0: I was a student minister for my first ten years of vocational ministry, that was a long time ago. But even though it was a completely different era of student ministry because so much has changed in church life and culturally, I've discovered that one thing is still true. Student ministry is where the things that church members couldn't sell in their garage sale go to die. I. think if you talk to to any student minister, they will tell you stories of the stained furniture and broken televisions that have equipped their ministry spaces. But it doesn't just stop with student ministry. In a lot of rural churches, uh, it's customary to host a pounding when the new minister shows up uh, so that they can get their pantry stocked. And I can't tell you over the years and many poundings how many tons of canned goods Julie and I have thrown away that were expired when they gave them to us. And uh, I I kid you not, I kid you not, in my last church we got two items. I believe it was uh, a jar of peanut butter and some jelly that had been uh, sampled before... (laughs) They had been given to us. They didn't stay around very long. If you use butterball turkeys, you may be already aware that the company has a hotline set up to help people with their holiday cooking questions. And one year, a woman called to inquire about cooking a turkey that had been in her freezer, by her estimate, for 23 years. And she was asking, would it be safe to eat? And the person on the phone said, well, if it's been kept below zero the entire time, I I guess it would be safe to eat, but it's probably not going to be very good. I mean, the the taste would have long since gone. And having heard that information, the person on the other end of the line said, that's what we thought, we'll just give it to the church. (laughs) Now, I'm afraid that we take that same kind of approach far too often when we think about our relationships with Jesus. I don't really need that. I'll just give it to Jesus. I mean, it's as if we're okay with our desire to only give Him the broken TVs and expired canned goods and long forgotten frozen turkeys of our lives, things that we don't really care about losing. Sure, I'll give that to you. I wouldn't miss it anyway. We think that this Savior who sacrificed saved us, is okay with little or no sacrifice on our part. But that's not the case. We were actually singing that we believed that not to be the case in the song right before I stepped up here today. But Scripture confirms it as well. You need look no further than Matthew 16, 24 through 28. Why don't you find that in your copy of God's Word, please? What we're about to read together is also recorded in the Gospel of Mark, almost word for word, like it is here, also the Gospel of Luke. So this command that is repeated in this chapter of Matthew isn't some insignificant side concept, an option for the super-Christians who are reading Scripture. These verses tell us, and the other passages that record it for us, tell us that sacrifice is an irreducible part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So I hope you've found this in your copy of God's Word. Would you stand, please, as we honor its reading? Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Those verses that I just read give us some key details about really what sacrifice is. Help us understand it at the ground level. And the first thing that they show us, important not to miss, is that sacrifice is a continuing commitment of a follower of Jesus. It's something that we are to continually do. I think we all get, on some level, that surrender... Surrendering our earthly and eternal life to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, which is the entry point into salvation, is an act of sacrifice. We understand that we, there, is, there is something of a sacrifice that is being made by us when we go to Jesus and ask for His forgiveness and salvation through His sacrifice. But I think what we fail to realize is that surrender is simply the first act of an ongoing lifestyle of sacrifice that is to characterize the follower of Jesus if I were trying to communicate all of the intricacies of what Jesus is saying in our passage here in the language in which it was originally spoken it would sound something like this anyone who has made the decision to come after me has also made the decision to deny himself, take up his cross, and keep on following. Me in this way. In the way in which you came into the faith, you are to continually live out that kind of spirit of sacrifice. That's not a literal translation, but it communicates the point. The follower of Jesus doesn't just experience a one time sacrifice at the front end of the faith in a singular moment of surrender. The follower of Jesus maintains a continuing commitment to live that sacrifice. From that moment on. And so we have to ask ourselves the question what does it mean to sacrifice? And many of us, because we're accustomed to church life, are thinking, here he's going to talk about money. But I'm not. But before you get very relieved, you may wish I was talking about money before we're all said and done. What does it mean to sacrifice? Well, what we learn in this passage of Scripture is that. Second, sacrifice is a radical abandonment, a radical abandonment to obedience by followers of Jesus. I want you to focus on the words take his cross. And I want you to step back a few verses with me so that we can see clearly the principle that that Jesus is articulating here. Back in verses 16 through 20, we have a famous event of Scripture. Jesus is with his disciples at a place called Caesarea Philippi, and he begins to quiz his closest followers, who do you say that I am? And they begin to kind of give the politically correct answers. And then Peter, who never misses a chance to just jump out in front, says, I know who you are. You are the Christ, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus affirms him, and Peter's feeling it. I mean, he's really feeling it. There's no doubt about it. He's feeling it. I got the right answer. He's the kid in class who gets the right answer and then lords it over all the other kids. And then after that answer is given, Jesus says, you got the answer right. Let me fill in the details. You hear Christ. You hear Messiah. You hear conquering King. But I'm here to tell you that being Christ Being the Messiah means that when I go to Jerusalem, I'm not going to assume the throne. I'm going to be afflicted by the leaders of the Jewish nation, and I am going to be crucified. I'm not going there as a conquering king. I'm going there as a suffering servant. And then the kid that got the right answer says, you're mistaken. Let me share with you what this really means. It doesn't mean that you go and do those kinds of things. This is not what it means to be a Messiah. This should never happen to you. And what does Christ say to him? Christ says to him, the only person that would lead you to say something like that, is Satan himself. That's harsh. And then he says, if anyone wants to follow after me, he's got to take up his cross and follow me. Because Christ understood what the Father wanted him to do. Because Christ understood the will of the Father for his life. He was going to Jerusalem. You see, he, he saw, saw it in, in broader terms. He saw, as Paul reflected on in Philippians chapter 2, that Christ became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus wasn't viewing the cross as a sacrifice in itself. What he was viewing is the cross as an implication of his sacrifice, of his radical abandonment to the will of God. He was going to Jerusalem to fulfill the will of God. And he then says that's what sacrifice is. You have to be completely abandoned to the will of God, just like I am, so take up your cross and follow me. That is what he means when he says that we must take up our cross. He is saying that we sacrifice ourselves radically to the will of God. And and if Peter's counsel to Jesus... Was whispered in his ear by Satan, then the tendency for you and I to sidestep the harder edges of the faith, to accommodate it to our will, comes from whom? It comes from Satan in our lives telling us to not be crazy with the faith. You say, well, that's... That's not truly me. I mean, it's not. And I get that. I mean, I I think when we sang that song before I came up to preach that we all meant business. I really do. I mean, I think we, we meant that. We just didn't really grasp the depths of what we were saying. And so here's what we need to ask ourselves. We need to ask ourselves, what do we really sacrifice for? Because we are a disciple of that which we sacrifice for of that which we willingly sacrifice our time, talent, and treasure. That to which we radically commit to be obedient is truly our master. So for some of us, that that kind of, of all-in commitment shows up in our commitment to our job. And for some of us, it's our, our kids' successes. And for some of us, It's our savings for retirement. For some of us, it's our politics. That to which we radically abandon ourselves to is our master. And Jesus says, until you are willing to follow Him with that same kind of radical abandonment that makes your abandonment to those things pale in comparison you really aren't grasping what it means to be a follower of Jesus. When I was a student minister in my 20s and the early 90s, there was a song, some of you are going to know it, by a Christian uh, group, hip-hop group called DC Talk, called Jesus Freak. Jesus would agree with the song. We, by the world's standards are to be freaks. Why? Why are we to be that way? What causes us to be that way? Well, the third thing that we learn about sacrifice. Sacrifice is a priority shift. A priority shift where the things that would be, would be normally desired in a normal person are completely eschewed by someone who's following Jesus to be radically abandoned to the will of God means that we will consciously choose over and over and over again those things that the world aspires to as loss as as Paul said in Philippians 3 which we read earlier to be rubbish which is a kind Sunday morning way of saying manure, and it's actually rougher than that. It's not a swear word, but it's something that parents would write me about if I said it. There's a, there's a fundamental shift in priorities, and it's represented by nothing less than death to self. Now, it may not mean a martyr's death, but following Jesus does require that same level of death to self. I had a seminary professor long ago ask a question as we were studying what it meant to be dead to sin, as Scripture teaches that we are. And so he, he asked this question. He says, how do you know a person's dead? And he began to offer observations. He said, you speak, they don't speak back. You slap, they don't flinch. You poke them with a the needle and they don't jump. You shine a light. In their pupils, and they don't dilate. In other words, they don't respond to stimulus. All right? We get it. So, how do we know that we've died to self? When we don't respond to the stimulus of our will. When Jesus is saying this, and our will is saying this, it doesn't register. That's the priority shift that Jesus is talking about here. The person who is following Jesus has become so dead to their own will that they only want to live for the will of God. That is the loss incurring priority shift that is given to Jesus' followers. One of my favorite books, it's old, and I don't even know if you can get it readily anymore, is by an author named Philip Yancey. It's called The Jesus I Never Knew. And in it, he quotes the, the words of a distinguished British psychologist, a man named Alastair Hardy, who was speaking to the Royal Society of Medicine. And here's what he said about the, the Christian faith. He said, The spirit of self-sacrifice, which permeates Christianity and is so highly prized in Christian religious life, is masochism moderately indulged. Now, he's speaking of the psychosis of following Jesus, at least from his perspective. I want you to listen to what he says. A much stronger expression of it is to be found in Christ's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. This blesses the poor, the meek, the persecuted. Exhorts us not to resist evil but to offer the other cheek to the smiter and do good to them that hate you and forgive men their trespasses. All of this, he says, breathes masochism. Masochism. Is that what Jesus is saying? Is Jesus saying we're to be masochistic, that we're to seek out trouble? No, no. That's, that's not what he's saying. What, what Jesus is saying is that we need to be so radically abandoned to the heart of Christ that whatever it is he calls for us to give up that we want doesn't even register as loss, that we are no longer stimulated by our own will. This is what it means to lose one's life. That's what you were singing. That's what I was singing. That what I want doesn't matter anymore. I want want to linger here because I, I don't think we really grasp the the profound nature of what Jesus is calling us to. There's this grievance mentality right now that is permeating American evangelical Christianity, the idea that our increasing cultural marginalization demands that we fight back. That's in our minds. It's just almost inbred in us. I want you to hold your place in, in Matthew, and I want you to find the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, and I want you to follow along with me as I read. The, the unknown author of Hebrews is seeking to encourage his readers to face the future sacrifices of following Jesus in the same way that they had faced their past sacrifices. Here's what he says beginning in Verse 32. But recall the former days after you were enlightened. So he's speaking. I want you to remember back to when you were saved, when you came out of culture and entered into the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. He says, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. That hurt you, stepping out of culture like that. It it hurt you. You struggled, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who were so mistreated what does he mean by that he says well some of us experienced public reproach for our commitment to follow Jesus I mean we gave up this life in favor of his and and we had to bear public reproach from that and then those of us that didn't so closely identified with those that did that it called into question our allegiance and we were suspected of being followers of Jesus so he says back when you gave your life to Jesus everybody suffered you suffered we get that remember that he says yes But then, I want you to see what he says to them now in verse 34. He says, for you had compassion on those in prison, you visited those in prison, joyfully, this is the deal, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you yourselves knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They risked their lives visiting others like them in prison, and then crazy talk accepted with joy the government taking what they owned because they'd given themselves to Christ. Can you imagine the drama? That would ensue a blue valley if some of us were thrown into prison for our faith. Or that we lost our homes and our savings and our livelihood because of our faith. And yet the Jesus followers of the first century Roman Empire accepted these things with a joyful eye to how much more they had in Jesus. The point is... That sacrifice is such a radical priority shift that our value system no longer becomes the same. You're different. So you can say, go ahead and kill me, I'm dead already. Go ahead and take everything I own. It doesn't matter. I've got so much more in Christ. This is why this next point is true. Sacrifice is a joy. Once we learn What we really have in Jesus Christ, then anything we lose here is actually a joy because of what is coming. He says, when you give yourself so radically to me in this way, what you find is life in its truest sense. We're all living in illusion. That's the reason the words of Jesus sound crazy to us. Read the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those that mourn. What? That's crazy. It must be pretty words. Jesus says, no. It's not. I'm telling you, this is what life looks like when you give yourself so radically to me. You figure out what life really is. And so all of these things that you would otherwise mourn and long for no longer seem like the big deal anymore. That's why you're blessed. That's why you're blessed. You've figured out what life really is. You're so radically abandoned to the will of Father that everything you get in Him is so much greater than anything that you can measure or touch here on earth. And then uh, the second thing he says in this passage of Scripture is that in losing everything, followers of Jesus gain the approval of God. And us radically trusting that Jesus is pointing us to real life, not the eternal part of our lives that we're not using right now, but this life and being so radically abandoned to Jesus in this life, willingly and graciously and even joyfully giving up whatever might be taken from us because of our relationship with Christ. That the Father, when he returns, will recognize us as being his Think about that. What is the Father looking like looking at for confirmation that we really belong to Him? Some long ago event in our lives where we walked an aisle and were baptized and Mama cried and a picture got taken? Was there he going to be looking? Jesus says he's going to be looking for someone that continually took up the cross and followed Jesus, just like Jesus took up the cross to follow the will of the Father. The, writer, the author of Hebrews back in the passage we looked at in a moment ago says the same thing. He says, hand-wringing over the thought of persecution and what you would lose is to throw away your confidence in Jesus. Here's, here's what I wrestle with. When I sit down in my brown chair by the fireplace with my Bible and my journal and whatever else I'm reading as a part of my devotion. I'll come across a psalm. I usually start my devotion in a psalm, and I'll just pray that psalm. And so many of the psalms are, you know, I'm afflicted and I'm downtrodden. And I look at my leather chair and my fireplace and a heated room in a nice neighborhood in Johnson County, and I go, well... I guess people are afflicted, but I'm not. And then you know what I do? I begin to have a wrestling match with the will of God. I begin to say, God, I sure hope it's not your plan for me that I am afflicted. I sure hope that I don't have to give up these blessings that I have for you. I mean, I do believe the things that I have relationally, physically, I believe they're blessings from God. Uh, The book, Uh, Proverbs teaches me to view them in that way they are blessings from God but I'm at a point right now and I bet you you are too where you're thinking man I hope I hope I get to keep it all until I don't need it anymore and so I'm grasping what am I saying to God I'm saying to God that my will still matters my will still matters But if I'm really going to radically abandon myself to the will of God and take up my cross daily and follow Jesus, then I have to get to the point where I accept the blessing but hold it freely. Or I don't, in my prayer time, say, God, I hope whatever your will is for my life that that it doesn't mean that my marriage is, is threatened or, or that my, my kids are, are threatened or my grandkids are threatened. I, I hope that the rest of my life involves a wife that loves me and Jesus and kids and spouses and grandkids that, that love me and love Jesus. I hope that my retirement that I have planned is going to look just like what I've always thought it was going to look like, and I hope everything is great. That's what I want. But I am not saying to Jesus... Like I need to be saying to Jesus, I am willing to joyfully lose it all for the sake of following you. John Piper, who I love, said this about heaven one time and I've never forgotten it. He said, would heaven still be heaven for you if it had all of the things that you had here on earth but didn't have Jesus? And I'm afraid that there's a lot that I want to put in the coffin with me to make heaven better (laughs) when all that matters is Jesus. So so what can we do then? What can we do? If if the habit is sacrifice, one of the five habits of a Jesus follower, If, if being a follower of Jesus involves sacrifice at the atom at the atomic level, then then what must I do? I must wake up if I'm going to take up my cross every day and make this declaration, I will give myself to God and to others beyond what is comfortable. To the point that it would cost me. I I give myself to God and to others each day beyond what is comfortable. And it would be super easy for us at this point in time to say, okay, well, uh, that's what I'll say then, but not really think about the implications. So let me give you a task. Let me give you a task to follow here to live this out this year. If we're going to make this year a year of sacrifice, what do we need to do? Well, I I think that one of the most difficult things for me is losing in general. I like to win the argument. I like to, to win the ball game. I like to win. You do too. And because we live in a world where we're starting to experience marginalization and we're starting to feel the pressure actually starting to stand out around us as followers of Jesus, we, we feel this need to fight back, to win that battle. And so we, we feed ourselves on media outlets and, and social media outlets and Internet outlets that, that, that rile up our sense of indignation and we begin to say to ourselves, I must fight so here's, here's what I'm needing to do this year. I'm, I'm needing to make a commitment to Jesus that I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to defend myself. If, if I'm to take Matthew 16 seriously, that's what I'm being called to do. And by the way, he said the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Then later on, I don't have to defend myself. Why do I have to defend myself? That's crazy. I don't have to defend myself because I'm dead already. And I've got all that I need in Jesus. That's exactly the kind of crazy life that Jesus is describing in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's the exact kind of crazy life that he's underscoring here where we don't need to be right, to win, to defend ourselves. We just need Jesus, and we've got all we need. I told you you would appreciate if I talked about money instead of this. But this is what it is. This is not, this is not superhero Christianity. This is Christianity 101. Radically abandoned in a way that makes zero sense by this world's standards to the will of God. And just maybe, just maybe, the cultural pushback that we are trying to do in all of our different ways would actually be successful if the world around us finally saw what a Christian really was. That's... That's what God is calling me to, I believe. And I think he's calling us on some level in ways peculiar to all of us to that same kind of thing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.